Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Hello everyone, welcome back. I am your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and welcome to What Christians Should Know, Volume 2, Episode 11, The Christian and the State. This is part two of a three-part series, and this series equips you with clarity and meaningful answers as to how the Christian interacts with the state or secular authority in their day-to-day lives. Last week in part one, we talked about what the state is and how the church and the state interact. In this week's episode, part two, we'll discuss civil obedience and civil disobedience. So let's get started. The classic text on how the Christian is supposed to interact towards the state is given to us by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. The text says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, Whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Granted, the hard part about reading these verses is that Paul never says that the governing authorities are righteous, that they have any idea about what the Bible says, or that they have any idea about what Christ is about. Regardless, here within the first two verses of Romans 13, we have the most succinct and pervasive answer to what the Christian's relationship to the state is and that is civil obedience. So, generally speaking, Christians are to be model citizens who obey the law and are examples to all those around us. This way, people who do not know Christ can look to Christians as upstanding exemplars of citizenship, and this behavior testifies to how our faith molds and shapes us in positive and distinct ways. Others will also realize that Christians are not incessant agitators and rabble-rousers. Our unique reasoning as to why we act through civil obedience simply rests on the recognition that God is the ultimate source of the state in human society. As a result, out of obedience to God, we obey the state. If we look to the life of Jesus, for example, he had all the power and the ability in the world to wipe out the pagan Roman government in the blink of an eye, but he never did such a thing. In fact, Jesus encouraged civil obedience to the Pharisees and the Herodians in that he said it was perfectly lawful to pay the Romans taxes. In Luke 22, verses 47 to 53, Jesus cooperated and did not resist when a crowd came to arrest him, even though he committed no crime. 
In fact, when violence ensued, Jesus told everyone to stop and heal the ear of the high priest slave after it had been cut off. My point is that throughout Jesus' life, even though the Romans were the ones who were going to crucify him, he never worked explicitly against the Roman authorities, but rather practiced civil obedience in the midst of Roman governing authority in Judea and Samaria. At the end of his life, the Bible provides no evidence that Jesus had broken any Roman laws. In Romans 13.1, when Paul writes that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, the English word subjection is translated from a Greek word which means to subordinate, submit, or to be obedient. So the essence of what Paul is saying is that if we resist the state, we are resisting God who ordained the state. Resistance will bring condemnation, and the Old Testament is loaded with stories of people who rebel against God, and then God sends them evil rulers with the intent that the people will repent. Even more, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, the center of the empire that crucified Jesus, and the people who would eventually execute Paul. So Paul writes that it is the same government that they must obey. And the reason why we must obey is because God ordained the state and we must respect the Lord's sovereign providence. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 verses 13 to 15 echoes the same sentiments when he writes, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Note how this verse clarifies that if Christians are model citizens and obey, this behavior will commend Christ to others and prevent foolish people from criticism of God. Furthermore, Submission to others is in fact itself a service to Jesus. Being in subjection to authorities also empowers us to be an effective witness to Christ to a world that does not yet know him. Paul even writes in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 to 3 that we should always keep our leaders in our prayers because such a course of action is good and it will enable us to live quiet and peaceable lives in godliness. Now let's make sure we are clear. When Paul uses the word subjection to guide Christians in their interactions with civil authorities, he is not encouraging them to follow the state blindly and to do everything that they are told. Christians are never meant to be spineless, brainless robots who sheepishly obey every whim of the state. The scriptures clearly teach us that submission is required so long as this does not violate God's law. Hence, there is sound biblical evidence for civil disobedience, and this will be discussed later on. So when Paul writes that we are to live in subjection, this implies that we have to voluntarily subordinate ourselves out of honor and respect. So, the state as an institution is never inherently better than its people, and because God stands above humanity and the state, our ultimate allegiance always belongs to God. God is the one who assigns authority to the state, which is why Christians should always show honor to a person that represents the state, even if you're not one of their personal fans. Before David was king of Israel, he was being hunted down by the current king, Saul. On one such mission to kill David, Saul entered into a cave in the wilderness of En Gedi, 
to relieve himself. David and his men were hiding in the same cave, and David had the chance to assassinate Saul, but he didn't. Why? David tells us when he says, Far be it from me, because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to Saul, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. That comes from 1 Samuel 24, 6. The text says that David persuaded his men not to take lethal action. David and his men then left the cave without harming Saul and went on their way. The paradigm of living in subjection extends into many other relationships in the Christian walk, including marriage and church leadership. So, in the same line of thought, husbands are not inherently better than wives, and the church is not inherently better than Christians. But in both of these relationships, the latter party submits to the authority of the former. Again, the reason why we do this is because God has assigned authority in these relationships, and any Christian in a position of authority therefore realizes that their authority assignment has been delegated by God and is derived from Him only. This follows the biblical pattern of hierarchical authority and is perfectly exemplified by Jesus, whom the Father assigned all authority in heaven and on earth. In the same line of thinking, Jesus is also the one who emptied himself and was obedient to the point of death on a cross. The point I'm making here is that Jesus did not use his assigned authority for self-promotion. Rather, he used his authority for the benefit of those who are in subjection to him. When we talk about a Christian living in the midst of an evil state, we have to realize that the state is not autonomous, meaning it is not a law unto itself. Therefore, the state can never commit evil and that evil be okay. Because God ordains the state, it is accountable to God. We also must realize that just as an ill-informed Bible teacher can do tremendous harm in teaching people false doctrine, people in positions of secular authority are much more vulnerable to the abuse of their power which can harm others and destroy life as opposed to protecting it. Ephesians 6, 10-12 even informs us that there are spiritual powers working in the natural order to bring about evil by schemes of the devil. This is what compels us to not only pray for our leaders, but to equip ourselves with the armor of God so that we may be strong in the Lord. Accordingly, when an evil state acts badly, it does not act in service to God. The Bible is riddled with evil states, such as Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, and Rome, who elected to destroy life and thus failed to obey God's command to govern properly. After all, it was the state, or Rome, that killed the Son of God. Even more, the Bible cautions us about putting too much faith and reliance on the state when such trust comes at the expense of faith in God. This is exactly what happened with the Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 to 18. Instead of chasing after God, the people wanted a human king to rule over them just like the other nations around them. The people were told that the king would abuse his power, unfairly tax them, and steal their property. Cognizant of these facts, the people still wanted a king, and for the most part, the people got exactly what they asked for and more— a legacy of kings that for the rest of history were characterized by behaviors that were idolatrous. One crucial point that I want to make that is often overlooked in modernity 
is that we can never allow evil states and the wickedness of rulers, both domestic and foreign, to distract us from our own sin, both individual and corporate. Throughout all of the Old Testament, for example, the Israelites rebel against God and do not live in subjection to the Lord. Resultantly, God punished the Israelites by subjecting them to wicked rulers and evil states. Back then, the Israelites could have lamented for decades about evil foreign oppressors, but if they failed to look inward and address their own corporate sin and repent, God would still have a just reason to allow them to be exposed to evil regimes. The classic example would be the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. A Jew living in the city at that time could have asked God, how could you have allowed this to happen? And why us? Are we not your chosen people? Yet these questions would ignore the idolatry, sin, and overall lawlessness executed by the Israelites that provoked God to anger. Consider what the prophet Jeremiah asked God on the verge of the Babylonians conquering Judah. In Jeremiah 5.19, the text says, It shall come about when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in the land that is not yours. In Zephaniah 3 verses 1 to 4, consider what the prophet says about the people of Jerusalem before the city is conquered by Babylon. The text says, Woe to her who was rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. In other words, what these two Bible texts tell us is that in focusing on the imminent threat from the outside, the people failed to realize that the root cause of their calamity was on the inside. A more specific example can be seen in the book of Habakkuk, where the prophet speaks directly to God and expresses deep concern over the iniquity of the people. They are characterized by their lawlessness and injustice is rampant. In Habakkuk 1, verses 6 to 7, God then responds by saying, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march through the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. So in other words, God responds to the sins of the Israelites by raising up an army that will serve as an instrument of his divine justice. Ironically, because the Israelites are lawless, God raises up a people whose standard of authority is themselves. The prophet Habakkuk can't seem to reconcile how a God who cannot tolerate evil is using a wicked people. Habakkuk ultimately rests in the sovereignty of God and finds joy of an expected coming salvation where God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises will be revealed. Thankfully, in 2 Chronicles, God tells his people what they ought to do in order for God to restore them, and it is not praying for the oppressors to go away. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, 
God says that if there is hardship and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. The point in me going through all of these verses is to make the simple point that whenever a Christian is living in the midst of an evil state, or whenever the Christian is living in the midst of an environment where there seems to be an innumerable number of threats from the outside, it compels all of us to look at our individual walk and the walk as a nation as a whole in order to ask ourselves, does God have a just reason to compel his people to turn to repentance and to consider their own ways? I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and I hope what Christians should know in general has benefited you and helped you to grow your faith. But I'm taking a brief pause because I need your help. I'm asking all of my listeners to rate and review the What Christians Should Know podcast so that we can grow our audience and let others know where they can find sound Bible teaching. So if you're using an iPhone, you can rate WCSK by finding us using the podcast app. And if you're not using an iPhone, you can find WCSK through the iTunes store. So I urge everyone to please act now, rate WCSK, and let the world know why the program has empowered you to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now back to our program. Now we'll talk about the Christian in defiance of the state or civil disobedience. So as I hope I've made clear thus far, the Christian's primary mode of engagement with the state is civil obedience. Yet is it biblically permissible to ever disobey the state? The answer is yes with a qualification. That is, there are not only instances when a Christian may disobey the state, but they are required to disobey the state. So then, when is civil disobedience required? And the answer is, we are required to disobey the state when it compels us to do anything that is against God's law. For example, when Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, ordered the Hebrew midwives to murder newborn male Hebrew babies, the midwives purposely disobeyed and did not follow the orders of Pharaoh because they fear God, as it says in Exodus 1.17. God's word tells us that life is sacred and that thou shall not kill in Exodus 20.13. We know that the midwives did not sin because further on in Exodus, the text tells us that God dealt well with them. In Matthew 2.16, Herod ordered that all male children under the age of two in Bethlehem be murdered. If you were a Roman soldier and given the order to kill innocent children, you would be in the right to disobey that order and in the wrong to obey. In Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 20, Peter and John were specifically told to stop preaching the gospel by local authorities. The two very diplomatically responded by saying that they cannot stop preaching what they have been eyewitnesses to. If you were living in the American South in the early 1800s and a lynch mob led by the local sheriff showed up looking for slaves that you happened to be protecting and hiding in your basement and the sheriff asked you, have you seen these slaves? 
you would be a fool for telling him the truth and subjecting yourself to this authority. These men intend to do evil and to violate the sanctity of life and therefore do not deserve the truth. In honoring God, loving your neighbor, and attempting to protect life, this act of civil disobedience to the law is just. And the reason why that course of action is just is because American slavery and the law that enabled it was unjust. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 verses 15 to 16 makes the explicit command to grant asylum to a runaway slave and further clarifies that the runaway should not be mistreated. So essentially then, the state can err when it comes to God's law in two ways. One is the state can compel you to do something that God's law tells you not to do, or the state can compel you not to do something that God's law tells you to do. In either of these scenarios, God's law always trumps the state. Therefore, if a direct, pressing, and indisputable conflict exists between God's law and the state's law, you must obey God and disobey the state. It is the state that will pass away, yet God's kingdom endures forever. Ultimately, we are only temporary citizens of natural kingdoms, but our eternal citizenship is in heaven. When we look to the most recent national movement where civil disobedience was executed persistently and nonviolently, the civil rights movement of the 20th century, it becomes clear that if those who were victims of unjust discrimination would have simply kept their heads down and obeyed, there would have been no crisis and no reason for anyone to take action. The fact was, prejudice was codified into law through segregation and roadblocks to people of color voting in the South. Leaders such as the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. inspired people of color to embrace their inherent sense of dignity and self-determination, which fueled a longing to end unjust oppression. This longing and resultant awareness of the present was necessary because history tells us that those who oppose true freedom and liberty are those in positions of power who stand to lose much when justice is properly executed and unjust oppression is not tolerated. When everyday people realize exactly who they are, worthy human beings formed in the image of God, what becomes crystal clear is that no secular authority can either take away or demean that divine identity. Power and privilege are seldom relinquished voluntarily, and so strong, unrelenting resistance in the form of civil disobedience is required to dismantle power and systems of privilege that benefit the strong at the expense of the weak. Of course, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a fierce proponent of nonviolent civil disobedience, and the overwhelming biblical emphasis on the sanctity of life validates this claim. Evil begets evil, and violence will only beget more violence, and the lingering effect of countless generations filled with strife. As Christians, when we practice civil disobedience, we do so knowing that we are in pursuit of a moral, peaceful, and righteous end, and as a result, the means to arrive at this destination are as moral and as pure as the future we seek to materialize. The ends and the process of getting there must match, for the process is simply the end not yet fully grown. As Dr. King once wrote, 
we cannot believe or we cannot go with the idea that the end justifies the means because the end is pre-existent in the means. Immoral, destructive means cannot bring out moral and constructive ends. Hence, just as the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace, we are called to walk in the spirit of peace and not one where we are plagued by internal violence that seeks violence against others. If it is peace that we seek, then we ought to walk in peace, by peace, and through peace in pursuit of justice and righteousness for all. This is where violence and nonviolence actually have a common thread in that both perceive that suffering is beneficial. Violence says that suffering is beneficial as it can be inflicted on others. Nonviolence says that suffering is beneficial as it can be endured by the self in an attempt to deprive others of suffering and end the cycle of hate destruction. Suffering endured by the self is perfectly embodied by Jesus on the cross, who in order to quench the fires of violence that sought to destroy a man of peace, he took the suffering of humanity on himself. It is here that we see that love, or the agape of God, and the love of our neighbors is not a mushy, emotional, or fleeting feeling that is contingent on circumstances or reciprocity. The agape, or the love of God, is the purposeful intent to see good triumph over evil and to see justice triumph over injustice, regardless of the scorn from others and independent of the strong, recalcitrant injustice that seeks to maintain the status quo. Just as Christ endured the cross, we are called to endure sufferings of injustice in order to bring about transformed situations. Of course, the transformation of situations never perceives people as targets, but rather views systems and institutions as vehicles of injustice that just so happen to involve people. Such individuals are not enemies, but potential allies in disguise. The thrust, then, behind civil disobedience mimics the activity of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Spirit regenerates a totally depraved human being, cognizant that in order for a person to respond and be awakened to something holy, good, and pure, divine action is required. Similarly, when we, as Christians, look out into the world and see total depravity, immorality, idolatry, and injustice, we realize that it will require acts of sincere love to awaken a dormant sense of righteousness and to inspire the transcendent good written onto the hearts of humankind. Ultimately, in a world consumed with self, there is violence, competition, scarcity, fear, and injustice. In a world where the elect dedicate themselves to God's purposes, there is peace, cooperation, abundance, love, and justice. And speaking of justice, it is almost impossible to talk about the Christian and the state without having an honest discussion about what the Bible says about justice. It is an overriding concern both in the Old and the New Testament, and justice will be the focus of our next lesson, part three, the final part of the Christian and the state. So God bless and see everyone in one week. Take care. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including written transcripts, a bookstore, and online Bible study, please visit wcsk.org.